Turn with me to the eighth chapter of Acts, please. We've been looking at these stories of these great heroes and heroines in the book of Acts and their mighty deeds. In chapters 1 through 5, Peter is the uh, dominant personality and sometimes John. And in chapters 6, 7, and 8, it's uh, Stephen, the first martyr, and Philip, the evangelist. Now, these last two uh, individuals, Stephen and Philip, as you know, were part of the seven, the group of seven in Jerusalem who were selected to wait on tables to care for the, uh, for the widows, the Hellenistic widows. They were a group of Greek-speaking, Greek-educated uh, Jews, Jews who were familiar with Greek culture. And uh, these men became the leaders of the movement from Jerusalem on out into the Greek-speaking world, to the Gentile world. Stephen was perhaps the leader of this group, and his story is told in chapters 6 and 7, and his death in chapter 7 leads us into chapter 8. The uh, first verse of chapter 8 actually belongs with uh, the last verse of chapter 7, and Saul was in hearty agreement with his murder, actually, and then the description of the persecution that arose as a result of Stephen's death. Stephen died, and Saul said that he was glad that he was dead. And on that same day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging or harrying the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who went about, who had been, therefore, those who had been scattered, went about preaching the word. The uh, persecution that uh, came about as a result of Stephen's preaching resulted in the expulsion of these Hellenistic Jews from Jerusalem, and they went all over Judea and Samaria, preaching the word and planting churches. It's these very churches that uh, Paul refers to in First Thessalonians as the churches in Judea which were the result of this uh, scattering. The, uh, the paragraph begins with persecution and it ends with preaching. The church in Jerusalem was uh, a very comfortable church. They had all the, the, uh, the amenities. They had the apostles there to teach. They had a, a great fellowship of believers. Uh, there was a large group of people. They were having a tremendous impact upon the city. And uh, I think we, like they would have enjoyed that church very much and it would have been very difficult to leave. It was necessary for God to drive them out of Jerusalem, which he did theologically through Stephen's message. Stephen's message laid the theological basis for the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles and Saul's persecution was the geographical cause. It was the actual uh, reason why they were forced out of Jerusalem. Uh, Saul of Tarsus was driven by his own tortured conscience. We know from later accounts that uh, Saul himself was guilty and, and felt the emptiness uh, that, uh, that anyone feels without, without a Lord. And Stephen's preaching was like a, a goad to his conscience. It pierced his heart, and in reaction to, uh, to that guilt, he began to persecute the churches, which, uh, again, is an indication that things are not always as they seem to be. Sometimes when people are in opposition to the gospel, it's because they're inveighing against something that's deeply rooted in their spirit. They know it's true, 
they're simply reacting against it. And this we know is true of, the, uh, of Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul. He scattered the church, and wherever they went, they went about preaching the word. Now, that's, uh, that's Luke's general description of the process. Then he becomes specific. In the case of Philip, he, he gives us one example of this group of Hellenistic Jews who left Jerusalem and then began to preach in other parts of the world. Verse 5, we're told that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming the Messiah to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, were giving attention, or we might better translate that phrase, responding to what was said by, uh, by Philip. And they gave heed to what he said. They believed it. As they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was much rejoicing in that city. Luke uh, states the case on matter of uh, factly. It's, it's easy to miss the implication or the significance of that statement. Philip went up to Samaria. And uh, what we may not realize is that up to this point, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. As a matter of fact, they hated the Samaritans. They were outcasts. They were, they were half-breeds. They didn't have anything to do with one another. The, the cleavage between the two uh, people began very early. When Israel settled the land almost immediately, there was a division between the tribes in the north and the tribes to the south. And that division carried on into the monarchy, the time of David and Solomon. After Solomon's reign, the two nations actually divided. There were two separate kingdoms established, one up north with Samaria as the capital, and one in the south, with Jerusalem is the capital, the two uh, kingdoms of Israel and, and Judah. And then during the time of the uh, deportations and exile, first by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, they were further divided. The Assyrian kings deported large numbers of people from the north and brought in people from, uh, from other parts of, of the world, pagan people, idol-worshiping people. And they intermarried with the folks that later became Samaritans and uh, established a rival worship center in, uh, in Samaria, close to Samaria, the city of Samaria, on Mount Gerizim, and uh, continued to carry on their own worship. They had uh, their own scriptures. They were looking for a Messiah, but they, they did not accept the scriptures that the Hebrews had. The Jews at this time who lived in the south thought of them as heretics, and they would have nothing uh, whatever to do with them. After the exile, there was one attempt to try to reconcile, but uh, it, it fell apart. The Jews wanted no part of the Samaritans, wouldn't have them help in, in building the temple, and so the Samaritans went back up north to worship at their own temple site. When uh, the Romans conquered Palestine, they set up two separate provinces, Judea and Samaria, and by the, by the time of Jesus and the apostles, the cleavage was complete. They would have nothing whatever to do with each other. As a matter of fact, Jews, if they wanted to travel from Judea in the south to the north, would cross over the Jordan River onto the east side of the river, make their way up through Perea, and then travel west into Galilee rather than travel through uh, the country of Samaria. 
They would go miles out of their way because they wanted no contact, whatever, with the Samaritans. Now, for Philip to go to Samaria would be like Israelis today sending missionaries to the PLO or um, uh, Southern whites inviting blacks into their church or Idahoans uh, inviting Californians to come to Idaho. They just didn't like each other. And they were content to, uh, to let things uh, remain as they were. They didn't want any contact. Perhaps the best illustration of their attitude is found in John 4. Jesus and the uh, disciples were making their way up to Galilee. They had been traveling all day. Jesus had walked about 20 miles that particular day, and he was weary. And he sat by a well in Samaria. Uh, John tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And he's not compelled to go through Samaria by any outward circumstances. He went through Samaria because he wasn't a racist. He didn't want to go all the way uh, over to Perea and then back into Galilee the route normally taken by the Jews. Uh, his own nature compelled him to go directly through Samaria. He came to the well at Sychar, sat down to rest, and uh, you know the story, a young woman came out of Sychar, uh, probably a, a very attractive young woman, though a little worn by this time. She came by herself, which would suggest that she was uh, an outcast, not uh, well-liked, Certainly, it wouldn't be good for Jesus' reputation to be seen talking to her. And uh, evidently, he remained silent while she drew water. She let her little clay pot down into the well and drew water out. And when, when she had taken the water out of the well, Jesus asked her for a drink. He didn't have uh, a rope and uh, a bucket, no way to get water out of the well. So uh, he asked if she would share some of her water. And she reacted in surprise. She said, why do you, a Jew, speak to me, a Samaritan woman? A sort of double surprise. Men in those days didn't talk to women, especially strange women. And uh, Jews certainly would not talk to a Samaritan woman. So she was, uh, she was surprised that he would talk to her. And uh, she said, why, why, do you, why do you speak to me? And he said to her in his typical cryptic way, the Lord loved to put things in such a way that they aroused uh, people's curiosity. He said, if you just knew who I am, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And I'm sure his eyes twinkle as he made that statement to her. And she said, sir, uh, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? And uh, Jesus said, if you just knew who I, who I am, you would ask of me, and I would give you living water. It would be a well of water, a spring of water, springing up in your, in your heart into eternal life. And uh, the woman didn't quite know what to make of it. And so Jesus said, go and, and call your husband. Let's, let's talk this thing over together. She said, well, I, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you've spoken well. You don't have a husband. As a matter of fact, you've had five. And the man that you're living with now is, is not your husband. The woman said, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. 
Uh, tell me, we worship God here on this mountain, in Mount Gerizim. You worship God at Mount Zion. Where's the proper place to worship? Now, I don't think that uh, she was trying to derail him. I know some commentators think so. But I think she was reacting the way we react when we find out that someone we're talking to is a physician. After we've chatted for a while, we say, uh, you see this spot right here on my arm? I think that's exactly what, uh, what, what, what she saw. She realized that here was someone who could help her. Here was someone who could meet uh, the hunger in, in her life. She was a desperate woman, an empty woman. She had gone from husband to husband trying to find someone who would love her. And uh, she was left unloved and lonely and, and desperate and empty. And here was some who might be able to help her because she sensed down deep inside all of her life that she had been wrong. She wanted to know the answer to life. And so she asked the question, where should we worship? And Jesus said, it, it doesn't matter where we worship. You can, you can worship anywhere. The issue is not where, but how. God responds to those who worship Him in, in reality, in truth, who open their hearts to Him, wherever they are. And you know the story. She scampered off back to Sychar and rounded up a number of her men friends, perhaps the only friends she had, and brought a great number back uh, to the well with her. And about this time, the disciples returned, and, and it's of this group, making their way to the, to the well, that Jesus said, Behold, the fields are white under the harvest. It was that, of that group that Jesus spoke. And there was apparently a great harvest in, in Samaria that day because what Jesus realized was the emptiness of those people. Though they were not Jews, they too were looking for a Messiah. In their writings, they call him the one desired. And though theologically they were, they were inaccurate, and though culturally they were very much unlike the Jews, yet despite all the differences, there was, there was one fact that bound Jews together with all other people, and that is a great hunger for God. They were looking for something. And we need to take that to heart. Differences should not make any difference. It didn't to Jesus. Uh, we tend to make a great thing of cultural differences, but they don't really matter. It's the gospel that enables us to bridge that gap because we recognize that a need exists everywhere. I, I have a friend uh, who now is in Florida who, um, who always seemed to sense when people were ready to respond to the gospel. And I asked him one time, Mike, how do you know when people are ready to to respond to Christ. He said, it's easy. I ask them. <clears throat> it's very profound. <laughs> it really is. Uh, we can assume that the need is there. Very often it's uh, covered up and not, not clearly uh, seen by us and perhaps not even recognized by them. But the need is there. Now, we're told that Samaria, uh, that uh, Philip went to Samaria and he proclaimed the Messiah to them. This is to the city of Samaria itself, another place different from the place where the woman lived. But uh, he found the same response there. The multitudes with one accord 
responded. All Philip did was proclaim Christ, declared the gospel, and uh, Luke tells us that there were signs that accompanied the proclamation of the gospel. These were signs similar to those that accompanied the, uh, the uh, proclaiming of the gospel by the apostles. They were confirmatory signs. The Samaritans, like the Jews in Jerusalem, were looking for the marks of the Messianic age, and these signs, the casting out of demons and the healing of the paralyzed and the lame, were, again, confirming signs. They were sent to validate the gospel that the apostles and others preached. And the result, we're told, is that there was much rejoicing in that city. Our cities today are pools of misery, coldness and emptiness. But wherever the gospel goes, it produces joy. Ray Stedman used to tell the story of a, of a young Japanese woman that came to a home Bible study that he led. And uh, she was there for a number of weeks before she met the Lord. And, uh, but as a result of the teaching of the Scriptures, she came to realize that she needed a Savior, and she made Christ her Lord. And the next day when she came to the, uh, to the class, or the next week when she came to the class, all she could say was, Whoopee! Whoopee! She didn't know hallelujah or praise the Lord or any of our uh, uh, Christian uh, uh, expressions and cliches. All she knew was, Hooray! Whoopee! And that was her expression of, of joy. C.S. Lewis says that uh, in one of his essays that whenever the gospel reaches the city, three things happen. And number one, people go to work. <laughs> it's always one of the marks of a Christian society. Everyone works. He says, there, there, as he puts it, there are no parasites and no passengers. And uh, furthermore, those who work produce something good. That's always the, the first mark. The second mark is obedience to authority. You find that people begin to submit the laws, even laws that they find are, that they think are unjust and unreasonable. They're willing to submit for Christ's sake. And the third result, he says, is, the, is that the city becomes a place of cheer. They're singing and, and joy. And uh, that's what happened in Samaria. And that's what can happen in Boise as we uh, proclaim Christ there. Now, there follows a sour note, beginning in verse 9. Luke tells us there was a certain man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, the same word that's, that's found uh, earlier in verse 6. They were responding to this man, giving heed to him, believing him, following him, saying, This man is what is called the power of God, that is, the Great One. The uh, rabbis of that period referred to God as the Great One, and apparently he had taken that title for himself, claimed to be divine. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Now, don't think here of uh, illusionists or those who, uh, who use sleight-of-hand techniques. It's not that sort of magic. This man was into occult things, and uh, the uh, miracles that he produced were, were real. Demonic, but they were real. 
But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. As uh, we read before, the, the city responded to Philip as he preached. And even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, what amazed him was the magic that, that uh, Philip uh, uh, did. He wanted to be a part. Uh, he wanted the power that Philip had. And yet he's described here as someone who believed, at least he had nominal uh, belief. Now, in verses 14 through 17, Luke uh, gives us histo another historical sketch to uh, take the story of Simon on a bit. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. It should strike us that John was sent. Uh, if you remember, he was the one who accompanied Jesus through Samaria the first time they journeyed through that part of the world. And it was John, along with his brother James, who was so offended by the inhospitable attitude of the Samaritans. And he was the one who asked Jesus if they should not pray like Elijah and bring fire down on the Samaritans. But uh, John now goes to confirm the ministry of Philip. Peter and John travel up to Samaria from Jerusalem to see what's happening there. And they came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. This is a passage that uh, has confused a lot of Christians because they imply from this paragraph and others in the book of Acts that the coming of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, is some uh, phenomenon that's subsequent to salvation. Someone becomes a believer, and then at some other point later in their life, they are given the Holy Spirit, usually through some crisis experience. But what we need to understand is that the book of Acts is a period of, of movement. Uh, we can't build any sort of, of doctrine of the Holy Spirit from the book of Acts because things are in flux. This was the Samaritan Pentecost. The, uh, the church in Jerusalem had its Pentecost at one point, but this was the time when the Spirit was poured out upon the church in Samaria. Now, had this pouring out not come after their uh, receiving of the Holy Spirit, they might have believed that they were a separate church. There was a church in Jerusalem, and there was a church in Samaria. There had to be a delay for the apostles to come up to Samaria and confirm what had occurred. They laid hands upon the believers. They had that capacity as apostles, a capacity that's not passed on to anyone else, it died when the apostles uh, died, but uh, they had the authority to lay hands upon people and confer the gift of the Spirit, which they did in this case, which was an indication to the believers in Samaria that they were a part of the church in Jerusalem. They were not a separate group. What had happened in Jerusalem happened to them. The apostles, who were the foundation stones of the church, were their foundation stones as well. They derived their authority. Their revelation, Scripture, came from the apostles in Jerusalem. So this helped them to realize that they were one body. This is not an indication that the gift of the Holy Spirit is some act subsequent to salvation. 
Luke inserts this paragraph here to let us know something of Simon's nature. In verse 18, he tells us that when Simon saw the, that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. In other words, he thought now that he understood the mystery. This was the key to their magic. These men could lay hands on others and certain life-changing things occurred. And Simon said, that is real magic. I want that. And so he offered the apostles money. Now this is the uh, origin of our term simony, which is the, uh, the practice of religion for the sake of, sake of money. Simon was the uh, first of that, of that group. He said to the apostles, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. The New American Standard uh, translates uh, in a bit more polite manner. Literally, what Peter said was, To hell with you and your money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not straight before God. In other words, your heart is crooked. Simon, you're a crook. You're not honest. Peter saw right through him. He realized that this man had never given his heart to Christ. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the, and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I, I see that you are bitter and the slave of sin. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Uh, Simon apparently is worried about the consequences, but there's no indication that his nature ever changed. Simon is an interesting character. His, his uh, story is carried on for us by some of the early writers of the church, men like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, who were disciples of the apostles and whose writings we, uh, we have today. They refer to him as Simon Magus. It's an ominous sounding term, but it just means Simon the magician. And uh, uh, we know that uh, he, he, he did not change. He never did give his heart to the Lord. He continued to call himself the Great One, God himself. As a matter of fact, he later went to Rome, and he had a statue erected to himself with the inscription, To Simon the Great God. And uh, he became the uh, first of the heretics. Throughout the book of Acts, Luke has been describing for us various attacks upon the church, first outwardly in the form of persecution from, from the Roman Empire, and then inwardly, in the form of hypocrisy, remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and then division, incipient division, the possibility that uh, over uh, some supposed slight uh, directed towards someone, the church might divide, the story of the uh, Hellenist widows. And now the third internal attack in the form of heresy, those who call themselves Christians, but who do not believe what Christ taught, who do not believe what, what Christians believe. They don't give themselves to the teaching of the apostles. And that was Simon. We're told that he um, revealed himself to the Jews as God the Father and to the Samaritans as God the Son, that is the Messiah, and then to the Roman world as God the Holy Spirit. And he went all 
over the ancient world, establishing cult centers that were called Simoniani after his name. And uh, he eventually went to Rome and uh, had himself buried with the promise that he would rise again the third day, but he never did. <laughs> that was the end of Simon. But his effect went on for years. Into the third century, there were groups of Simoniani that had a, a deep and lasting effect upon the church. He was the first Gnostic, according to the early Christian writers, and the first of the uh, great heretics. It seems to me, in looking at the story, what, what we discover is the key to incipient heresy. In other words, it, it's a way to detect uh, a heretic in the making. It's also a way for us to guard against falling into heresy. There, there, there's one mark that Luke gives us. It's not popularity. There were a number of people that followed Philip, just as there were a number of people who followed Simon. The number of people, the number of adherents that a person has, has nothing whatever to do with his, with his spiritual condition. That's, uh, that's never the issue. It's described for us here in terms of a contrast in verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the multitude, with one accord, were giving attention to what was said by Philip. What was, what was said? He, he was proclaiming Christ. He was exalting Christ. But uh, in verse 10, we're told of, uh, with, with reference to Simon that all from smallest to greatest were giving attention to him. Simon was uh, the first uh, of the Muhammad Ali's. I, I am the greatest. And they followed him. They looked to him for leadership because he exalted himself. And it seems to me that that's the test. Philip exalted Christ. Simon exalted himself. It's always wrong to insist that everyone follow us. It's always wrong for us to follow one man. Uh, from the very beginning, the church had this problem. John refers to Diotrephes, who loved to have the preeminence. And then Simon came, and he declared himself to be the greatest. And down through church history, there have been men of that character who, who declared that they and they alone had the truth. Some have even declared themselves to be divine. They had, are the only ones that can interpret Scripture accurately, and often they write books that, that uh, are intended, uh, at least they state that they're intended to clarify Scripture, but they distort the apostolic message. And what this says to us is that when we see someone who exalts himself rather than Jesus Christ, we need to take heed. But more personally, it says to me that when I start exalting myself, I need to be careful because that's always the first step into heresy. I do not believe that we become heretics because we become confused about Scripture. We're never led astray because we don't understand. I think it's pride that causes us to become self-deceived. Paul describes some in 2 Timothy as, though who, as those who were deceiving and deceived. That is, they began after a while to believe their own lie, so they couldn't recognize truth if they saw it. Peter, on the other hand, says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace 
to the humble. The key to understanding Scripture is to have a humble mind, which means in practical terms to submit to the Word as we read it, and not to sit uh, in judgment upon it, but to sit under it and let it do its work in our life. Stephen, in the final words of his uh, discourse, as we read last week, quoted Isaiah 45. Heaven, God is speaking, he says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the place that you'd build unto me and where is the house of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things have been, says the Lord. But to this man will I look. And, and Stephen didn't go on to quote this passage, but this is the next verse. To this man or this one will I look. This is the man that God shows favor to. This is the person that God instructs. He gives everything to this person. This is the man that, that I will look to, to him that is poor, that is needy, and of a contrite heart, and whose heart trembles at the word. That's all it takes to get to know God. That's really all it takes to understand Scripture, is a humble heart, a heart that's willing to submit to Scripture. Let's pray. Father, it's so good to know that that you uh, show your favor to us, not because we're talented or gifted or intelligent or powerful or noble. The, uh, the attitude of, of heart that opens, uh, that opens up your word to us is a humble and contrite heart. We ask that uh, we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand, submit to your word as you've revealed it, obey you in those small things of life, the things that, that, that really matter in the end. Make us, Lord, an obedient people and use us this week as we go out into your world to make visible the invisible Christ, help people to see through our, our quiet dependence and obedience to you that we're your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.